I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 42, as we have uh, been making our way through the Psalms for the last couple of years, and uh, we're up to Psalm 42, well-known Psalm, dearly loved Psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The last 12 times I've uh, spoken, it's been with interpreters, so if I just take these awkward pauses, I'm just uh, used to waiting for somebody to uh, come behind me, but I think we'll catch on again. Uh, it's, it, was, it was good to be in Brazil and Uruguay. Thank you so many of you for asking. I hope to give a, a report at some point about some of the things that we learned. Um, but it's always good to be back home and to open God's Word with you. Let's uh, give our attention to Psalm 42. Um, a mascal of the sons of Korah. This is God's Word. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God in heaven, thank you for this lament, uh, this song lifted from the heart of a hurting uh, saint. I thank you, Lord, for the, the truth of God contained here. And Lord, I thank you that there's food here for our souls. I pray that it would be so tonight as your spirit speaks this word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past weekend, we have had the privilege of hearing our brother Jesse Prichel talk about fat souls, all the good things of God that uh, are freely lavished upon us, the excessive nature of the kindnesses of God, and our um, calling, obligation, you could even say, to enjoy those good blessings. Uh, but... But how do you um, get to that place of feasting and celebrating and enjoying and receiving the good gifts of God when uh, your life is, is troubled and, and your soul is troubled, your soul is in turmoil? Um, it's, it's nice to hear about the joy that we can have in God. And yet, if your, uh, if your life right now is weighed down with grief and concern, uh, if, you're, if you just know inside things are not right, you're not settled, you're not satisfied, um, there's, there's a war maybe going on inside you, well, how do you move from there to the place 
of feasting. And that, that is the issue addressed by Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. They are most likely originally written as one psalm. That It shows up in the uh, Hebrew manuscripts, most of them at least, as one psalm. And they have a, a, the common theme, uh, why are you downcast, O my soul, and why so disquieted in me? That refrain shows up in both 42 and 43. And so they most likely uh, were originally uh, one psalm. But I'm just going to look at Psalm 42 tonight. Our, um, Nick uh, Thompson, our intern, did a, a wonderful job uh, a while ago dealing with Psalm 43. And Psalm 42 um, has its own... Um, its own entity, its own identity, and its own, its own message. Uh, we're, not, we're not sure who the author is. Old commentators tended to say it was David, uh, but the, the title says the sons of Korah, and so we'll go with that. It doesn't make much difference either way um, because it is a personal account of a, uh, the exercise of faith in a time of soul trouble. This is, this is not a person who's just sort of bouncing along in victory, uh, right, uh, from glory to glory in the Christian life. This is someone who is, is deeply troubled, and it's a, a wonderful um, just call to us of where to look and, and, and how to be helped in our trouble. The reoccurring refrain of the psalm, 42 and 43, is that refrain, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Verse 6, my soul is downcast. It's a lament, a, a, a psalm, a song that's offered uh, to God through tears. And we can identify in Psalm 42 three causes uh, for his soul despair, three things that he points to that is weighing down and causing turmoil. The first is just the sense of the absence of God. A drought in his soul. So verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalm opens with a scene of uh, a drought. Uh, think of, of arid, dry, desert land. Uh, of soil that's cracked because it hasn't rained for so long. And maybe there had been a pool of water there before, but the pool has, has dried up and there's just the cracked soil. And, and standing next to it is a, a heart, a, a somewhat a deer-like creature that would roam the hills of Judea. And it is, um, it is suffering from this drought and it's come to this water hole um, to quench its thirst. But, but when, it, when it gets there, there's, there's no water to be found. And so its tongue hangs from its mouth. Its mouth is open. It's panting. It's thirsting, dying for water. Uh, this is a, a metaphor, a picture that David uses specifically in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is a drought of the soul. Everything might look normal on the outside. If people would look at you tonight, they would see just you. And they would assume that everything's fine with you. You seem in your right state of mind. You, you seem content. And yet tonight, if we could do a soul survey of the congregation, um, how many of us wouldn't um, be able to say uh, that it is not well with our soul? Uh, there's trouble in our soul. There's turmoil, restlessness. There's a, there's a sense of lack 
We, we can't say that tonight we're experiencing the blessing of God and the presence of God and the goodness of God. We, we're not really drinking from that fountain in a soul-refreshing way. We long for it. We, we have memories of it. But, but tonight there's, there's an absence of spiritual refreshment. Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4, Verse 14, that if you believe in me and drink of the living water that I give to you, out of you will, will flow springs of living water. And, and tonight you might think, well, I, I remember what that felt like, but there's no water there tonight. Just dry, parched lack. And so there's nothing flowing. There's nothing to give. And when you're there, and if you're, if you're sensitive to the, the reality of what's going on inside, um, tears come easily when we are spiritually parched. And so the writer says, my tears have been my food day and night. When you have a, a troubled soul, when you, have a, when you have a spirit that's in turmoil, there's a, there's, a, there's a weariness and a longing and a tendency to cry. And maybe you don't even know why the littlest things can set you off. And your eyes well up. You just, you're troubled, you're sad. And your tears are your food. And we can sort of be tempted to brush off those experiences and, and know that tomorrow the sun's going to rise and, and with it all the duties and obligations that are in front of us. You've got children to care for. You've got a job to go to. You've got school to attend. Um, life doesn't slow down just because you're exhausted or because you're, you're troubled in soul. But it's important to come, and maybe God gives us Sundays for one reason, so that we can stop and consider, how is it, and where are we? And it's important to consider the nature of this thirst. Why is it there, and, and what's it about? And the writer specifically names his thirst as a thirst for God. It's, it's not just a thirst for, for better circumstances. It's fundamentally a desire for that Precious, sweet communion with God. I'm, I, I thirst for God. On one hand, that's a universal thirst because God has made all men in his image and he's placed eternity in every man's heart. And so whether people recognize it or not, the longing that they, that they experience and they do, it's all rooted in the, the loss of fellowship. The fellowship that we were created for, the fellowship with God. So G.K. Chesterton can say that the man who's knocking at the door of the brothel is in fact knocking for God. He's looking for something that satisfies. Uh, in high school theology class, we're reading Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, and he deals in chapter four with just this truth of uh, the, the universal human longing for satisfaction. That we sense that we're made for something, we're meant for something, but what is it? And people assume that there's, there's, it must be that there are some circumstances that we could change and, and improve and that that would satisfy. But uh, over the last 100 or 200 years, you can, you can see that people's lives are improved in almost every way. Better health, literacy, life expectancy, freedom, wealth. And yet no one argues that people today are fundamentally more satisfied, more deeply fulfilled than they were in the past. And that's because nothing in this world can actually satisfy. It doesn't scratch that eternal itch. 
C.S. Lewis says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for the desires exist. So a baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. And a duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires, and there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so it is. And we're hungry for things that uh, nothing here can satisfy. Even the, the gaining of them. Um, we want more than success. Success doesn't satisfy. We want more even than a great relationship. We want glory. We want infinite beauty. We want infinite love. We, we were created for majestic things, things that would make us blush in, even if we were honest about um, the, the greatness of what we hunger for and want. But that's the truth of what it means to be made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis again says, most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings that no marriage and no travel and no learning can really satisfy I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called a successful marriage or trip and so on. I'm speaking of the best, uh, an unsuccessful marriage, I'm sorry, or an unsuccessful trip. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. The spouse may be a great spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. And it always does because we weren't made for this. And that's the, the hunger that every person made in the image of God knows and has to wrestle with. But that universal longing is magnified tenfold, a hundredfold for the child of God. For those who actually know and have experienced and tasted the goodness of God. And so the writer says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Uh, in opposition to all the false man-made dead gods, uh, he's not hungry for religion. He's not hungry for the, the comfort that spiritual exercises can bring. He's not looking for that. He's looking for the living God, the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the prophets. You see, the, the, the real person, the God who made everything by the word of his mouth, the God who has engaged this creation with his word and, and his spirit. I want to know the living God. When can I meet? When can I appear before God? When a little two-year-old uh, falls and skins their knee, who is it that they cry for? It's almost always mommy. And in my experience, um, no one else really satisfies. Daddy can apply the Band-Aid as well as mommy, but uh, it's not a Band-Aid ultimately the two-year-old wants. It's comfort they want. It's consolation. And, and uh, for comfort and consolation, only mommy will do. The heart wants something more than just a change of circumstance. And that's the experience of God's children in times of soul despair. Circumstances themselves aren't the fix. No change of external circumstance will, will, will give you that, the comfort and the consolation of knowing that, that God is with you and God is for you. 
Only God can actually satisfy that, that deepest hunger. And this is then the second um, reason for his despair. It's that he cannot go to meet with God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the writer longs to go there, but for some reason that we're not told, he's prevented from going there. We read that in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. One of the, the blessings of Old Testament religion was that there was a place where you could go. There was a location where God was. Uh, and he was there by his own word, by his own promise. He, he assured you that he was there. And you would go there with God's people on, on the feast days. It was a time for community, a time for all that we, uh, we heard about over, over this weekend, singing and dancing with the people of God as, as the community basked in the goodness of God and the presence of God. The, the air would be filled with the sound of children laughing and the sound of music, and you could smell the aroma from the sacrifices being offered on the altar. And it was, a, it was an experience that assaulted your senses with the joy of worship and the presence of God. It was dripping with goodness. But he can't do that right now. He's kept, he's kept from that experience. Uh, he's, he's uh, verse 6, in the land of Jordan and, and Hermon, Mount Mizar. We're not sure where that is, but, but um, it seems to be that he's, he's in the wilderness where the Jordan originates, far away from the holy city of God, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, far away from the worship of God. And alone there in the wilderness, in verse 7, it seems like he's maybe standing by a pool of the Jordan as it tumbles over the rocks and, and deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and your breakers and waves have gone over me. He's standing there looking into the abyss, the depths of the pool at the bottom of the waterfall and, and it looks like his life, turmoil, trouble. And the breakers and the waves are God's breakers and waves. They're not just things that have happened to him. They're hard providences that God has directed his way. And so it seems as though God is opposed to him. And that's the, the second grief. It's, it's that he's, uh, he thirsts for God, and yet he cannot go and be with God. And, and in fact, God seems opposed to him. And uh, his, his enemies then taunt him with that aspect, that truth, that idea. The taunt of his enemies, uh, where is your God, shows up in verse 3, again in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say all the day long, where is your God? Now that chant stings when you are in soul trouble because it resonates with a troubled believer. It's the question that he or she's been asking, where is God? We, we, we believe, we know, we trust, but, but it's not tangible. Where is God? Is God angry? Is God forgotten? He says that in um, verse 6. Excuse me, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
That's a horrible question to, to ask, and yet it's a, it's a question that God's people ask. Psalm 77, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Have you ever asked those questions? Of the, has the truth of your sin and the reality of his holiness broken into your life so that those questions become become real, become tangible? Where is, where is your God? It's the question, of course, that comes from the devil. Uh, when the devil uh, wants to attack you, he asks questions, just like he does in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said? And this is a question um, that he loves to ask to erode your faith and your confidence. Look at your life. Christian, where's your Where's your God? Why do you think you have all this trouble? Don't you remember what you've done in the past? Don't you think God is remembering that too? You know, you thought you got away with it, but you know, there are consequences to things you do. And God is, he's given you the consequences. You're gonna have to pay now. God's grown weary with you. You've just gone on too long. You've sinned too, too, too greatly. Is it any wonder the Lord has forsaken you? Could he do anything else, being a, a just and holy God? That's the, those are the questions the devil asks. Those are the things he'll taunt you with. And this, the, the suggestion, you see, is that if God were really with you, your life would look much differently. If God were present, you wouldn't have all the suffering. You wouldn't have the, the fear, the loss, the grief, the soul despair. That the, the insinuation is that the presence of hard circumstances is evidence of God's absence. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. But in light of these difficult realities that the writer is experiencing, it seems strange that he asked the question of himself, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? We could answer, well, you just told us why you're downcast. You're downcast because you're in a spiritual wilderness and God seems very far from you. In fact, he seems opposed to you. And you're downcast because you can't go to the worship of, uh, uh, at Jerusalem with, with God's people. You're kept from the banquet feast of grace. And you're downcast because your enemies are taunting you and their taunts are troubling. It makes total sense why you're downcast. So why, why does he ask the question? And the answer, of course, is that he's, he's admonishing himself. He's rebuking himself. He acknowledges all the things that are true all the things that he feels, all the things that he experiences, but, but he realizes, you see, that his downcast nature is, is because he's allowed those things to define the totality of his reality. The horizon of his life has been filled up with what he sees and what he hears and how he feels, but the circumstances of his life are not the only real things. In fact, they're not even the ultimate things. God is the ultimate reality. The gospel is the ultimate reality. And so he, he rebukes and admonishes himself. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so troubled? Why so much turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There's so much wisdom here for, for our life. So much of our spiritual depression comes from misplaced hopes, doesn't it? From forgetting where our hope actually is. Why do we, why do we grieve the loss of some things so deeply? Why, are, why is it so unsettling and, and cause so much despair? Well, we, we put hopes in things. 
<clears throat> in, in, in our marriage, in our family, in our, our career, our reputation, our health, our money, our plans, our abilities. And when those things fail, as they will, it's deeply disturbing because we had hoped and those hopes have been destroyed. Well, all those things, of course, are good gifts of God, but none of them are our hope. And so the writer here, he's, he's just reminding himself where his hope comes from. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. And the, the hope in God isn't I hope that God makes my life better. It's not I hope that God will help me and make me feel better. It, it, it's, it's hope in what God is and what God has promised. That we see the big picture. This is exactly what you see in Lamentations chapter 3. I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. That, no, that regardless of the circumstances that I'm, I'm facing and the reality of them is that they're painful and it's hard and it's grieving and there's tears in my eyes, but there's a reality underneath and around those truths. That reality is that God's love never ceases and his mercies never, ever come to an end. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. And that's what, he, that's what he does. He just puts his hope in God. Not to fix things, first of all, but to save him, to rescue him from uh, the peril, the soul peril that he, that he is in. The God in whom he hopes is the God who's promised to save him, not just from his taunting enemies, and from the, uh, but from the wilderness of his sin, the alienation caused by his, his own sin. Uh, God is Yeshua. That's the word here for salvation. It's the name of Jesus. I will hope in him, my salvation, and my God. And when he, when he speaks that way, he's, he's saying that God is not just the one who helps me. God is my portion. God, God himself is what I hope for. And that, that the reward I'm seeking, the blessing I'm seeking, is not just pardon or even, uh, or even help, but I'm seeking God. Because that's the core essential promise of the covenant of grace. I will be your shield and your very great reward. And so the, psalm is, the song ends with a confidence then. I will yet praise him. Well, how does he know that? How does he know this, this wilderness just doesn't stretch on forever? How does he know the drought's going to end? Well, he knows it because God has promised it's going to end. That God, the God who has saved him is a God who will save him to the uttermost. And that, that whatever God's purposes are in the trying circumstances, they are God's purposes. If they're God's breakers and God's waves, then, then even though they, they pound upon us, they are accomplishing God's purpose for us. They're not the devil's breakers. They're not our waves. We didn't misstep somewhere, and so these are the results that have happened. God's sovereignly at work in all the details and even in the trials. And so we can have great confidence that God is going to lead us through. He has saved us for goodness, saved us for glory. And, and of course, as New Testament Christians, we have this, this confidence uh, multiplied because, because all these things are true, given us in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus experienced Psalm 42, didn't he? 
Jesus could say more than any other man, I thirst for God when he was hanging on that cross, bearing our sin and our guilt. And when he says, I thirst, he's not just, he's not just physically thirsty. He's thirsty to the core of his, his being. He thirsts for his God because he cannot go and worship God. He's banished from the presence of his Father whom he loves. God, his exceeding joy, has turned his face away. And he's mocked there on the cross, isn't he, by, by his enemies. Where is your God? If, 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 if you're the Messiah, let God come and, and save you. Let God come and rescue you. You talk about God, your Father. Well, where is he now? And Jesus suffered that thirst, and he suffered that banishment, and he suffered the, mock, the mocking of his enemies because he was bearing your sin. He was bearing my sin. He was suffering what we rightfully deserve so that we never need to experience that sort of thirst. In fact, we can hear the invitation of Jesus when he says, come, all you are thirsty. Come to the waters. You have no money, come buy. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. The, the scripture ends with that invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let, every, let whoever is thirsty come and let him drink freely of the water of life. My question to you tonight is, have you? Are you? Do you know what it means to come and drink from the gospel of the Lord Jesus? To drink all the kindness and grace of God to you? To drink of the truth of his, of his mercy? His goodness, his favor, his promises? Are you able in the midst of your soul thirst to go to, to God, to go to God in Christ and to drink for your soul? You can Let's admonish ourselves and, and direct our hearts there. And because Jesus was banished, we are not banished, no matter what it might feel like. The truth is God is with us and God is for us. The, the cross of Jesus Christ sealed that. That we've not been destined for wrath, as Paul says, but we've been destined for eternal glory. Destined by God himself. That's the truth. Not only are you never banished, one day you will be welcomed as you never imagined. And so you never need to wonder, where is God? No matter how trying the circumstance, you don't need to wonder, where is God? Jesus, your Savior, who loved you and gave his life for you, is at the right hand of the Father. It's where he is. The Holy Spirit who's been poured out and dwells within you, is working within you and keeping you and holding you. That's where he is. And God the Father is on his throne he loved you before this world was made. He gave you to his son before you were born. He's working out his purpose and his plan and nothing can separate you ever from his love or take you from his hand. And so friends, put your hope in God. Put your hope in all that God is, all that the gospel promises, all that Christ has sealed to you by his own life and death and resurrection and all that the Holy Spirit is working within you. Take all that truth into the trouble, into the turmoil, and you will find that God prepares a, a table in the wilderness. God provides springs in the desert. You can feast on the goodness of God, regardless of the circumstances. And one day, we will feast together on the goodness of God in the most glorious of circumstances. He promises it. Let's believe it. Amen. <clears throat>
Well, God in heaven, we, uh, Lord, come to you. We are, we are weak and we get lost. And we forget the most glorious things. Lord, I pray for your people tonight. Some of our hearts tonight are sore. And we could, we could cry very quickly. The way has been hard. And we don't see an end in sight. We don't know how this works out. But Lord, I thank you that you call us to lift up our eyes and see the reality of our God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the reality of the gospel on which we stand. And Lord, I pray that as we trust in Jesus who thirsted and experienced banishment and the mocking of his enemies, bearing our sin, oh Lord, that we could be assured that we, will, we never need to thirst. The water is always flowing. And we will never be banished. The door is always open. And not only will we not be mocked or shamed, but we will be rewarded with glory and honor when the Savior returns. And so, Lord, I pray that we would strengthen our soul with the hope that is ours in Christ and that we will know that we will yet praise him, maybe through tears in this life, but one day with no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, but perfectly and forever. And may we be patient then to wait for that day. We will yet praise you, our Savior and our God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.